Well, good morning, everyone. If you would, take your Bible and turn to Lamentations. Lamentations, and we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. There is this attack on the Word of God from time to time uh, that it's far too repetitious, uh, that in different categories of thought and in, um, inside of even books like Lamentations, that, that the Bible just is, is, is repetitive in some sense. Well, I, I, I would just draw your attention to the, the mind of the great theologian Paul Harvey who said, repetition is an excellent teacher. But above that, repetition is an excellent teacher. But above all things, repetition is an excellent teacher. As we come to the second chapter of Lamentations today, you may feel as though this second chapter is merely a rehearsal of the first. The first word is the same The weight of the judgment of God is the same and the note of judgment continues throughout. But I hope that you will come to the same conclusions that I have, that it is that that if God does allow for repetition in His Word, truly, truly, it is because it's something we need to hear. It's something that needs to be woven into the fabric, not only of our minds, but our hearts and our lives. There is one significant difference uh, between chapters 1 and 2. And while chapter 1 really does focus on lamenting the sufferings themselves and in the face of God and in the face of humanity, as he calls out in the first section of these verses in chapter 1, for God to look upon uh, the suffering of Jerusalem and the nation, and then in that second section where he asks, is, is my suffering uh, not uh, impactful uh, towards you? Is, does it not cause you to consider uh, what is going on here? The, the, the focus is more the suffering. Chapter 2, rather, focuses more on the wrath of God against His people. And what we really have in the second chapter, I think, is is Jeremiah in some sense thinking about the good old days. Thinking about a time in the nation that has passed. And he is one who is grieving those better days. And we'll see the different trajectories of thought that he has about those good old days. But before we move on in reading the text, I think that we have to reckon with something that uh, kind of creeps its head up in our day. And that is the second that you start talking about the good old days, in our culture and society today, there is this impulse to mar all of human history and to somehow, that for moderns to set in judgment over the time that has gone And let me be clear, from my perspective, biblically, the best of days happened between Genesis chapter 1 and 2. (laughs) Genesis 3 forward, uh, there has always been sin and difficulty. After the fall, even the best of our days under the sun are mixed with our own foolishness. We never look back with undiluted pleasure at history as if humanity were completely well. But the question that I have for most moderns is, does that mean that we can't look back and find joy anywhere? And the answer for most moderns is no. We need to deconstruct and reconstruct. And can I just encourage you as a church this morning, when people want to deconstruct and reconstruct, what they're really saying is that they want to lord over you in their historical perspective. And so I, I just want to say that as kind of guarding a look back to the good old days. I don't think it's Jeremiah saying, boy, we were perfect. But he is saying it was better. He's saying there are some lines of how we lived our lives that were, well, they were closer in step with the living God. And that is always better. So with that in mind, if you would stand and do honor to the reading of God's Word. As we begin in chapter 2, verse 1, Jeremiah writing here under the inspiration of Almighty God, 
How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered His footstool in the day of His anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In His wrath He has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them His right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent His bow like an enemy, with His right hand set like a foe. And He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out His his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid ruins to its strongholds. And He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste His booth like a garden, laid in ruins His meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in His fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned His altar, disowned His sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain His hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her kings and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. This is God's solemn warning to you and I today. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father God, we come under the weight of your holy word and your majesty this morning. Father, might we not escape the impulse of this text. Might we be stirred afresh and anew not to be people who hold on to vain tradition or who come into a place out of uh, just habit, but might we be people who long to be nourished by the fullness of Your Word and might we live lives in communion with You for Your glory. Would You write these eternal truths on all of our hearts today in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The first thing that we see about the good old days is that God had communion in that day with His people. And I want you to see that the first verse of these nine verses really encapsulate all of the different subject matter that poetically Jeremiah is lamenting. He he points out the three different distinctive parts of his lament there in that first verse. And and the first thing is this emphasis on the, the, the nearness of God in communing with His people. And we have to ask the question, who is it that's being dealt with here? And it's obvious in verse 1. How the Lord has set His anger has set the daughter of of Zion under a cloud. He is dealing with His own beloved daughter. He is dealing with His own people, with this precious nation. These are the beloved sheep of His pasture. These are His precious saints, the redeemed of God. These are the people that the prophet Amos said, uh, God said through Amos in chapter chapter 3, verse 2, You only have I known of all of the families of the earth. Now think about that that expression. You only have I known. And we are familiar with Romans chapter 8 that those He foreknew. We are those people. Well, We are the redeemed of God. 
And that is who is being dealt with here. The elect of God, the chosen, the preferred people of God. And, 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 and this runs all the way through the New Testament. This speaking of God as a particular people. John chapter 15, verse 16, you'll remember these words. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask, the Father in my name, He may give you. We are God's chosen people, beloved. And anyone who wants to undermine that theological work is working against the majesty of Almighty God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. A full verse tells us something about what it means to be God's precious people in Amos. Amos says that you only I have known of all of the families of the earth, but that's not the full orb truth. And friends, I would tell you this morning in reformed circles that there is a penchant, and I think unhelpfully so, to give all of the blessings of God and being His chosen people, but without qualifying what that means in our lives. And let us learn what it means to be the people that God has known in Amos chapter 3, verse 2 in its full sense. You only have I known of all of the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. To be God's people comes with the promise that He scourges every son that He has received. He doesn't take our sin lightly. Beloved, this is the promise of God to you this morning. That He has delivered you from the penalty of your sin by grace alone through Christ alone. But in delivering you from the penalty of your sin, He is not going to stand for the presence of sin in your life or in my life. He will deal with both. And as we rejoice in knowing that our salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, and it is something that God alone is doing, we come this morning knowing that we are a people beloved of God, redeemed by the mercy of God alone. But we are yet a people who are called to worship, obey, reverence, and love our King. And my question to you this morning is in the economy, not just in our own lives, and that's important to reflect on, but in the scope of history, how do we see the church faring in our day? Are we reverencing Him? Are we loving Him? Are we obeying Him? And are we worshiping Him, not according to the dictates of modern religionists, but according to the Word of God? Friends, these words that, that, that Jeremiah writes here are shocking. How can this be? How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. These are His people. Look what He has allowed. He has promised to care for them. And at first sight, it, it might seem, Calvin says, unreasonable. That a people whom God had not only received into favor, but with whom He had made a perpetual covenant should be forsaken by Him. And so how do we deal with that reality? Do we come and say, well, God must be unfaithful then at this hour. If He has made a covenant to redeem His people and yet they go through suffering, it must be that God has broken His covenant. God forbid that we have that interpretation. Rather, the problem is this. The covenant people of God had rebelled in their hearts and hardened their hearts against God Himself and His prophets. That's what's going on here. And that is why the judgment is so brutal. The, the grace of God 
Being God's people should never, uh, being God's people should never give us comfort to sin against Him. We should never come rejoicing and having grace and freedom in the Lord and then use, as I think it's Galatians warns us, use that freedom as an occasion for sin. Beloved, that's not what God has set us free to do. He has, in fact, set us free from the penalty and from the power. And in His providence day by day is setting us free from the presence of sin in our life. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul knows what he's, what he's dealing with. If everything in the Christian life is by grace alone, if it is all a work of Almighty God, then someone's going to stand up and say, but that kind of grace will ultimately lead people to sin. Which gives us this reality. If someone preaches to you a grace that has any admixture of your own works in it, It's not the grace that Paul's defending. Because what Paul is doing is he is heralding the grace of Almighty God and the free electing reign and sovereignty of Almighty God. But then he says, this grace hasn't been given so that we can go on in our sin. We have been given this grace so that we might depart from our sin. That it might be stripped From us. Friends, sin is bad enough in the world, is it not? Do we as the people of God not lament the sin in our land? Do we not lament the slaughter of innocent children? Do we not lament brutality against women? Do we not lament the the, the various forms of oppression? Do we not lament the reality of entire segments of our population living in addiction to various things. Sin is bad in the world. But friends, sin is all the more disgusting and out of place in the assembly of the gathered of God. And God, through Lamentations chapter 2, knowing that God has never changed, instructs us this. He is going to deal with sin. And of course, we know that He deals with it first and primarily through the shedding of the blood of His own Son. But as we persist stubbornly, God is not faithless. He is faithful. And He will be faithful to Himself and to His Word. Friends, feel the weight of the statements here. If this is blowing you back a little bit, then you're hearing it rightly. How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. There is a cloud, a dark cloud, thick with judgment, set over and against the people of God. And this is one of the expressions that I think Jeremiah is poetically longing for and thinking back to the good old days. You'll remember the good old days when the people of God were set free from captivity. In Exodus chapter 13, we hear of these words. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar, in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and night, the pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of, of fire by night did not depart from before 
the people. And we remember well what happened as, as the people are led by this cloud and the glory of God is before them and, 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 and leading them where they should go and illuminating their path. And then they come to the edge of the Red Sea and the army of the Egyptians is bearing down on them. And we remember all the, the, the great happening when Charlton Heston you know, parted the sea. It was Moses. And the people of God crossed by. But here we have a description in the very next chapter, chapter 14, of what's really happening. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And a pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the hosts of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all the night. What this passage teaches us, friends, is a miraculous truth that God is a blessing and an illuminating, comforting presence to His people in His providential relationship with, him, with them. But He is a terror to those who are set against Him. And what has happened here in the life of Israel what is going on in the economy of lamentations is that Israel has begun to listen to the political ideology and philosophies of the Egyptians. And so the cloud that is set against them is set against them because they are no longer following the Lord, but they are following the world. And so He becomes like unto them this dark cloud. The cloud that led... The nation of Israel to freedom is now a cloud that leads them to bondage. Startling, isn't it? Lamentations chapter 2, verse 2 gives us the scope of his indignation. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy. In a horizontal sense, God has proclaimed his judgment. Or verse 4 He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has, uh, with His right hand, set like a foe. And the question that we have to ask, is God really the enemy of His people? Has God changed His disposition towards the nation in this context? Well, beloved, we know that God cannot change and does not change and does not ever depart from His covenant with His people. But what changes is you and I. Matthew Henry said, God is not an enemy to His people, but when He chastens them for their sin, He seems as though He is an enemy. He seems that way. It's the, it's the, and we've talked about this before, but Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, um, Paul exhorts the, the church at Ephesus that um, we are not to grieve the Spirit of Almighty God by whom we are saved, sealed rather, for the day of redemption. And why does he say that? He says it because he knows that if God has set His love upon you as an individual in Christ, then if you swerve into sin, God is going to deal with you because you are heading to the same redemptive day and He will purge the sin from your life. He will chasten you. He will deal with you. And in moments of our Christian walk, He can feel as though He were an enemy to us. But friends, even in the severest of His chastisement, He is never our enemy. Because it would be better that we lose everything here that we might lose nothing on that last day. It is better that we feel the weight of the wrath of God in this life that we might find His glory in the next. And we must always, as we're wrestling with these questions of what's going on here, Jeremiah, and what you're writing, you seemingly are telling me that God's my enemy, but He set a covenant with His people. How can this be? We have to remember verse 18 of chapter 1. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against His Word. That is the problem here for the people of God. It's not that God has forsaken His communion with them, which I believe is what is being reminisced over. The good old days of when we had close communion with God and He was going before us and He was leading us and we were following Him. 
Beloved, God never gives up on that in the life of a believer. But when we spurn His Word and we run headlong into rebellion, then the the context, the feeling, the weight of that communion at times is no longer delight, but it feels more like an enemy, a, a chastening. And God is right in doing that. And we can see throughout our own lives, and I would argue throughout all of the redemptive narrative and through all of church history, that this is consistently how God deals with His people. Not according to the whims of our own hearts, but according to faithfulness to what He has spoken. He will redeem a people for His own glory. Secondly, Jeremiah here laments the reality of the splendor of Israel being cast down. Look again at verse 1. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. What is the splendor of Israel? It is the distinction of the people of Israel apart from all of the earth. The splendor of Israel is something she does not share with the rest of the nations, with the rest of the world, with the people who are not part of the covenant people of God. The splendor of Israel is unique to her. And so the splendor of Israel can never be something that is really about her. The splendor of God's people is never about their number. It's never about their ability. It's never about their knowledge. It's never about their decisions. It's never about their strength. It is always about the one to whom they belong. Think about what we are told in a New Testament sense in 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of the darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." You see, the problem in the Lamentations is that the chosen people of God had forgotten the most glorious thing about their identity was not their political strength, was not their military strength, was not their nationality, was nothing about them. It was that God had chosen them. And they had given that away. And in our generation, beloved, do you not think we struggle in the church with the same thing? I can promise you we do because there will be this question over and over and over again. Why does election even matter? Isn't that just something for a bunch of old dead theologians to talk about? No! That is the birthright of the children of Almighty God. That is our splendor. Not that we saved ourselves. Not that we ransomed ourselves. Not that we worked anything of salvation into our own souls. But that God and by His grace alone that He has done it. And when we give away that splendor, beloved, I promise you we are dabbling in the ideologies not of the Word of God but of the world. You see, the people of God in Lamentations had forgotten what had come to them through Amos, you only have I known of all of the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquity. They had forgotten that to belong to God comes with spiritual, moral obligations, not so that they might be saved, but because they are saved. And so God took their splendor He removed their military power. He removed their governing diplomatic power. And He removed His hand and blessing upon them. God at times in our lives allows us to go through things that are crushing to show us that we are looking unto the world for something only He can give. And what we have in Lamentations chapter 2 is a picture of who the people of God are apart from the working of God. For those who would come into our gathering and say, well, I believe Jesus saved me, but I'm the one who ultimately made the decision. The people of God had that same attitude in Lamentations chapter 2. But here is the difference often in our day. is providentially, God is not revealing for whatever reason 
the limitedness of people who live with so much pride. And they go all throughout their Christian life holding on to doctrine that says they are the one that ultimately decided their salvation. I promise you this, that eternally will not go unpunished. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me and see the, the weight of the judgment of God here. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain His hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The question is, has this, has this happened by chance? Is this just as fate would have it? Is just, this just the way that things go? And the answer to that is no. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. This judgment comes from Him. He's stretching out here. The picture of a measuring line is that of, of one who would come to ultimately topple a building. And what is being said there in verse 8 is that God has planned every detail of this destruction. We should not be surprised then when the New Testament writer in Hebrews says in chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Not all worship is acceptable. With reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. Our God. The God that has redeemed us. The One who has promised to love us and to never leave us or forsake us. He is loving and He is kind, but He is also our God. A consuming fire that will deal with our rebellion. When we give up, when we give up cherishing that we are God's people. Look what happens in verse 5. The, the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up its places. He has laid, laid in ruins its strongholds. And He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. When we give up our splendor, our knowing that God has redeemed us, but that He's called us according to His Word to live in accordance with guarding His law and His precepts and our heritage we wind up in lament. So not only is Jeremiah here looking back to the good old days when the people of God communed with God, he's also looking back to the days when they were the splendor of all of the nations. When their glory radiated out into the world in such a missional fashion that, that even... Uh, the, the lost could see the glory, the distinction of the people. Friends, we live in a day and age where religious leaders want to sell away in so many areas the birthright of the church. We want to be so much more like the world. When people say, well, our entire method of evangelism is to be as close to the world as possible, to be like them so that people will like us, so that then they will like Jesus. Well, we've completely forgotten what it means to be the called people of God. The point is not that we're that we're judgmental or arrogant or unkind to the world, but that we know the distinction about our gathering is not in us, it's in who gathers with us. And we do not build our service around the world because the focus of our gathering isn't the world, it's the glory of God. Beloved, I hope that we are challenged in increasing fashion in the days ahead not to give away our gathering to the world, not to squander our splendor. Finally, here, Jeremiah laments the spiritual decay 
of the nation. And he thinks about a time when the spiritual life of the nation was at a better clip. We are a people called together to be spiritual. We are a people that are marked, and we found this all throughout 1 John, marked by the power of the Spirit of God. In Galatians chapter 5, you'll remember in verse 25 these words, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. John chapter 4, verse 23, But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking, He is gathering people to worship Him. The problem in Israel and Jerusalem here in Lamentations chapter 2 is that they had shipwrecked their faith. They had not walked with the Lord. They had not guarded His command. The the, the real issue, look back at at, at verse 1 again in chapter 2. This final reckoning. He has not remembered His footstool in the day of His anger. Now, the people of Israel would have heard this word footstool and understood immediately what was being spoken of. The footstool, all throughout the Old Testament is a picture of the Ark of the Covenant from which the position where God spoke to His prophets to the people. The Ark of the Covenant here has been taken away. It's been demolished. It's been plundered. It's been ruined. But the issue isn't really that the Ark has been carried away. Because here's the the fact. Jeremiah is now lamenting the fact that this sacred place where God communed with His people and and spoke into their lives spiritually and and nationally in so many ways. It, It has been plundered and ruined, yes. But the greater problem that Jeremiah knows is that long before the ark physically, the token of God's presence was taken away, the glory of God had departed. Friends, I want this to sink into our hearts today. There are so many churches that will gather this morning and they will sing old hymns and they will go through maybe communion services. They will go through rituals. But their worship is not rooted in spiritual substance. They're not actually relying upon the Lord and they're not looking to Him. They are merely holding on to the tokens of their worship all the while the glory of the Lord has departed from among them. We should never value anything, not our Baptist heritage, nothing above the glory of God in our midst. Above knowing Him. Above humbling our hearts beneath His Word and hearing from Him and delighting and being reproved by Him and growing. Friends, I have noticed in my time as pastor a very somber, sad reality. And it is this. That if we're not careful, we begin to build a spiritual life in our own strength, thinking about all the things that we have done behind, instead of having our hearts open to God, asking that He would correct and chasten us for the day that we stand before Him. Beloved, if we, if we come, any of us, to the age of 95 and God reveals to us something that we have falsely believed throughout our entire Christian life, then glory be to Christ. Repent and believe. The point is constantly to live a life that cries out, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips who dwells amongst a people of unclean lips. Father, forgive me. Not to stubbornly stiffen our neck and hold on to tokens of God's grace all the while the glory of God having departed. But look at verse 6 here with me. I mean, this is what has been going on in the life of Israel for so long. He has laid waste to the booth and is, uh, like a garden, laid in ruins His meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation, he has spurned king and priest. He had made her to forget the Sabbath. You remember Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all of your work. But on the seventh day is the, the seventh day is the Lord, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
Friends, we have the Lord's Day in our own generation. And, and here is some people will say, Jay, are you a Sabbatarian? That's a whole conversation we're not getting into this morning, but I'll tell you this. I'm probably, most people would fairly describe me as being an individual who has one foot into Sabbatarianism and the other one on a banana peel at best. And that is that we have the Lord's Day, beloved. We have a day when we get to come and hear from His Word. That we get to sing His praise. That we get to be encouraged by His Word. But in so many places, that kind of the Lord's Day is the Lord's Day. Our our brother Don Butts, he understood being here every Lord's Day. And joyfully so. But my fear is that so many people in my generation think that that's not important. I promise you, the joy that we had of sending that brother home yesterday will not be the reality of future generations if they don't take the Lord's Day seriously. Think of what God had spoken through Isaiah chapter 58. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on the holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage from Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Or listen to Lewis Bailey, a wonderful Puritan divine, when he speaks of the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is God's market day for the week's provision, wherein He will have us come unto Him and buy of Him without silver or money the bread of angels and the water of life, the wine of the ordinances, and the milk of the Word to feed our souls. Try gold and enrich, to enrich our faith. Precious eye salve to heal our spiritual blindness and the white raiment of Christ's righteousness to cover our filthy nakedness. The point, beloved, is not just to gather into a building once a week. It is that we come here to reverence and to live in awe of the thrice holy God. Look at verse 9 though and what is really at the heart of the issue here. And it goes back to verse 18. Remember the Lord is right for I have rebelled against His Word. It it, it comes back up in verse 9. The law is no more and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. There there is no longer anyone to read the Word of God and to expound on the Word of God. The whole of the Word of God has been done away with in every practical use. In its its ceremonial, moral, uh, uh, um, political fashion that they were used to living under, it is completely destroyed. The, The Ark of the Covenant that housed the Word has been obliterated. And now they are a a nation where no one is hearing from the Word of God. But beloved, don't come to verse 9 and think, oh no, that only happened when they were delivered over. No, the nation of Israel had this problem for a long period of time before the, the... Again, the tokens were taken away. Amos chapter 8, verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing of the words of the Lord. One of the marks of spiritual famine in our own day among people who profess to be Christians is that they are bored by the Word of God. That they want to be entertained more than they want to understand the oracular truths that God has delivered from His apostles and prophets. One of the great marks in our day as well of this being a reality. When you want a word from the Lord, there's a whole movement that says, I have a word from the Lord. I'm good, brother. What book, chapter, and verse? Um... Uh, But there are entire trajectories that that totally feel comfortable that it's not a big deal if if Jay comes in and just slightly takes a a verse out of its context. That is such trash. 
Because what that explicitly says, when we can rip verses out of context to make them say whatever we want them to say, we are saying we really don't value what God actually meant in these words. We should be careful about that reality. Samuel Bolton said, it is the law, it is the Word of God that sends us to the Gospel for our justification. The Gospel sends us back to the law to frame out our way of life. Again, this is the way of of thinking that John inhabited in his words that we are to guard the commandments of God. And, And as I was thinking about this and how in our own generation there is a lack of hunger in the church for the Word of God, in God's con providence this morning, uh, a new book showed up at the front door, which always makes me happy. Um, and, and Puritan books make me really happy. I, you know, I, every time I read the Puritans, I realize that in my undergraduate degree program, there was one reason why no one ever assigned the Puritans for us to read. And that's because if we were reading the Puritans, we would realize that half of what they were training us for in Bible college is nothing more than modern crap. And I mean that kindly. But hear how, this is William Perkins, hear how Perkins prays, and I'm just going to read it in its old English. Hear how he, this is his prayer before every one of his sermons. And think about the difference in the tone and tenor of so much of of, of our church life today. He prays here, and I hope this is the impulse of our heart. Almighty Lord God, most merciful and loving Father in Jesus Christ, we are here assembled before Thy glorious majesty to be partakers of Thy heavenly Word, which of Thine infinite goodness and mercy Thou hast ordained to be the ordinary means to work our salvation. We beseech Thee, therefore, Most merciful Father, to bless every one of us in the hearing and the speaking of Your holy Word. Good Lord, open our blind eyes that we may be able to understand it. And whereas our hearts are full of hardness, full of sin, full of manifold rebellions, Lord, good Lord, soften our hard hearts. Grant that Thy holy Word may have a two-edged sword of the Spirit to cut down sin and, and corruption in us and make us new creatures in Christ Jesus. And whereas we are troubled with many impediments in hearing Thy Word, as wandering imagination in our hearts, suggestions of Satan, and dullness of our own flesh. Good Lord, remove these impediments and give us, everyone, grace to hear Thy Word in fear and reverence as in Thy presence, and to receive the same not as from man, but as from Jesus Christ. And when we have heard Thy Word, grant that it may not be the savor of death to a deeper condemnation, but the savor of life to our eternal comfort and salvation. For this cause, write the same in every one of our hearts and transform us into the obedience of the same in our life and conversion. And because Satan is a deadly enemy to the ministry of Thy Word, good Lord, Confound Satan. Dissolve in every one of us the cursed works of the devil. Work thine own good works. Show thyself more merciful and blessing of thy word than Satan is or can be malicious in hindering of the same. Hear us, we beseech thee, in these requests and grant these graces to every one of us, not for our own merits, for unto us belong nothing but eternal shame and confusion for our sins, but for the merits of Thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, in whom Thou art well pleased, to whom with Thee and Thy Holy Spirit be given of every one of us all praise, honor, glory, both now and forever. Amen. What if that marked our gatherings, beloved? What if that was our heart? God, tear me to pieces that You might build afresh and anew the Christian life in me. The greatest hindrance to the advancement of the church in our generation is the hardness of Christian hearts. And the gift of Lamentations chapter 2 is God telling us, don't be prideful. If I have redeemed you and you continue in your stubbornness, I will deal with it. And I can topple entire kingdoms.
You see, friends, this is the perennial punishment that the people of God have always had to deal with. The people of God come together and they delight in the, the, the conveniences of God and the blessings of God, but they despise the work of God. And so His Word is taken away, and the judgment of God comes as the Word is taken away. Man rises up not to expound on the Word of God, but to expound on his own miserable, sinful thoughts. And the people live in the dark ages of having to, having to live with a hard taskmaster of someone else's opinion. Friends, those of you who have been around long enough know that I think John Calvin is great. I don't think he's right all the time. But one of the reasons why I love John Calvin was because he had a two-word emphasis for his entire ministry. Lucid brevity. That is, stick close to the text. Don't move away from it. Be clear. Let the Bible say what the Bible says. And friends, the fact is, we live in a day and age where so many people are given over to visions and ideas of men. When I was young in the ministry, I feel like I'm moving away from that. Somebody called me a young man yesterday. made me feel good. Gray hair in the morning, that doesn't lie. Um, but I had people tell me, Jay, you have to have a vision. Or I had people come and say, if you don't have this, this grand vision, then your, your people will perish. And every time I thought, are they not absolute? Do they not understand the context of Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18? Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. The whole point of of, 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 of the reality that where there is no vision, the people perish, you'll hear it translated that way, is this, that where the Word of God is not declared, the people perish. It's, it, in fact, if people heap a vision upon you that is their own, the judgment of God has already come. Now turn on TBN this afternoon and tell me that our nation is not headlong under the judgment of God. It's not about what they do in Washington. It's about what is consumed from the pulpit or from the, from the pew and preached from the pulpit. You see, the reality was the judgment of God against the people of God couldn't really be seen in the ashes of Jerusalem. It could only be seen in the spiritual realities of the nation that communion with His people had been marred, that their splendor had been given away, and that their spiritual lives had been laid waste by giving themselves over to the syllabubs of modern thought in their own day. Because what they had done is they had despised the prophets and went their own way. Remember, the Lord is righteous and He has spoken. You only I have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. And so then we come to this question. How do we apply this to our own lives? In a New Testament sense, do we just run out of here going, Bleh. do we turn into legalists and go, boy, I'm going to live the law? Please don't do that. Because you just frustrate yourself and God will bring a different kind of chastisement of showing you you're a fool for trying to live up to the glory of God in your own strength. Let's ruminate on these words. 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the Spirit of, the, of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Hear those words. It is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, 
what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And, it, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What Peter is saying there is if God so hates sin that He judges His own people whom He has redeemed eternally, what will happen to a world that refuses to worship Him? If the justified sinner who seeks the Lord comes against the chastening hand of God, what will become of the empty formalist with all of his dead ceremonies, the false professor in all of his hypocrisy, the proud and presumptuous sinner, the barrenly orthodox clinging only to his creed and not to Christ. If even, beloved, the choicest coin in all of God's collection is submitted to the refiner's fire for rebuking of sin, what will become of the silver and the dross? that is outside of Christ. If the righteous are only saved through adversity, what will befall those who do not truly know Christ? Beloved, I believe the way that we apply these first nine verses of Lamentations chapter 2 is to take seriously what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Beloved, there are prideful people who claim that they've lived the Christian life with no adversity, with no chastisement, in their own strength, by their own might. And I've heard it from a litany of people who have gone out from our own congregation in various ways. And every time that kind of prideful, braggadocious, I can do the Christian life in my own strength comes along, I tremble in my heart for those people. Because God will judge eternally those who are not abiding in Him and seeking to live not over His Word, but under the authority of His Word. The days of this life are not to look back on with undiluted pleasure, but the days of this life are to mold us through adversity, into the image of God. Beloved, this is the application. If you have trials in this life, rejoice, because that is the testimony of all of the saints of God. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning so thankful for this warning that if we leave Your Word and we despise our sweet fellowship with You, and we hold on merely to tokens, but not cling to the precious person of Christ, that we will be chastened if we belong to You. Father, if there's one here who's stubborn in their unbelief, even being deceived that they're a believer, would You work in their heart to bring them to genuine repentance and faith? Father, this morning, we rejoice in the life that we celebrated yesterday of Brother Don. Father, we ask for Ted and Renee and Troy and Todd and all of their family that You would continue to give them special and sweet graces um, in the days ahead. We pray that You would be a very near presence for Rachel Curtis and her family as she's mourning the loss of her grandmother. We pray the same for her precious family and ask that You would, you would work in, in wonderful ways in spite of the loss. Father, this morning we lift before You the Lyra family as this past week was the one-year anniversary of the loss of baby Milo. And Father, we grieve with them. Um, we're broken over the reality of that difficulty, but we know, Father, and we trust that that trial is having its perfect work in them. And we are so thankful to know of the promises of Your Word. And we look forward to the day when we are all gathered before Your throne and we rejoice with, with all of the saints and with this precious little one that You have taken. 
Father, we come this morning begging more than anything that we would be a people not marked by hypocrisy, but marked by Your Word. We pray, Father, that Your Word would not be an instrument for our vain imagination and intellectual idolatry, but that we would submit to the full weight of Your Word and have joyous fellowship with You, knowing that You are the only One who is responsible for our salvation, that we alone You have known from all of the people of the earth. Father, might we be a people who take so preciously the communion we have with You, the splendor of our gathering and being Your people, and the spiritual quality that You have called us to live. Father, would You do in this place what only You can do through the work of Your Spirit, and that is enliven Your saints for Your own glory. In Christ's name, Amen. Watch and pray, finding 